Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. Got a great stream back here from the break. I think you're really going to enjoy. And one of my favorite co-hosts is with me today, The Potentialist. Thank you for joining me, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me on and congratulations on the big news. Oh yeah, no, thank you. Uh, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, I, I guess most people have probably already seen, but uh, be be joining the blaze here uh now full time we'll have that with the both the channel and uh going to be writing for them as well probably going to have a new piece out on uh, the twitter files uh tomorrow with the blaze so uh if people want to check that out i was on uh, glenn beck earlier today uh was on his show very uh kind to have me on over there I was doing a little bit of sign tapping uh over with uh with glenn and his radio show this morning uh so you can check that out if you uh want to catch that but today we're going to be discussing a topic that uh I, I think we've we've touched on many times uh on kind of this channel but i've never really dedicated an episode to and because we have so many stories in the news that kind of fit into this genre i figured it was a good time to have the prudentialist on because i know he's done a video on it uh for his channel as well we're going to be talking about the slippery the slippery slope today we're going to be talking about the slippery slope and why the uh, slippery slope fallacy is not really a fallacy why uh it's actually a very useful heuristic uh that uh we've kind of been scared away from in our society and uh why we keep seeing it popping up over and over again uh, so, like I said, got a couple different uh, articles lined up for this. But as we get kicked off, Prudentialist, since you've done a video on this before, can you tell people a little bit why is the slippery slope not not a logical fallacy, or why is it uh, why is it something we should be paying attention to? Sure. So traditionally, people will probably know what slippery slope fallacy is. They've probably heard it in debate before, conversation with you know pearl or lefty company before. You know, it's really that if A, well, if we allow A to happen, then we'll go through all other 20 letters of the F that will end up at Z, and therefore A shouldn't happen. And it's usually along the lines of, well, you know, because no proof is presented to show that these extreme hypotheticals will happen, you're just being hyperbolic, and we shouldn't believe that one simple fall of the domino will lead to the rest. Um, the problem is, is that especially in our politics, there's a pretty clear line of the dominoes fall and where we can cite them. In fact, we can go all the way back, for instance, to, you know, Gris um, Griswold v. Connecticut, the issue that had led into birth control being used within, you know, married couples and their private domiciles had been raised concerns for dissent, saying that this logic could one day be used for the issue of abortion. And lo and behold, the framework that gave way to birth control uh, gave way into the logic and legal thinking and rationale behind Rover's way. The same thing we see all the time, disparate impact when we can easily point to historical examples and clear, you know, points where individuals are claiming that this is going to be the, the next glass ceiling for us to break, the next civil rights issue for us to explore, it's very true. And history pretty much kind of demonstrates why the slope fallacy doesn't or hold up to the way that liberals like to claim that it does. I think about that meme came around in, in 2015 or even earlier about what would happen if we allowed gay marriage to happen. And then it just said, you know, oh, the gays are allowed to be married and all these like extreme hypothetical examples like targeting children or, you know, state, you know, sanctioned uh, transgender surgeries wouldn't happen and things like that. And well, lo and behold, all those things did. So I think we've got a pretty clear proof that at least in our politics, when it comes to progressives, um, they're using the idea that we hold so close to facts and logic when you know that they say it right there. It's kind of mask off. We hold back so we don't fall into our own respect for logic reason yeah I, I think it's amazing that over and over again we kind of see this pattern and and that's really what it is right the slippery slope is the the encouragement to to, to kind of avoid pattern recognition avoid noticing that one of these things leads to the next leads to the next that the the rationale behind one decision will inevitably erode kind of the social barriers and and i think that's kind of the the allure of the argument is that it's it tries to stay you know very direct and logical it tries to stay with the things that can immediately be proved but i think that there's a certain common wisdom in the understanding that society isn't just based on pure you know logical uh 
argument that's not just completely based on formulaic logic. Society has certain barriers, has certain taboos built into it that kind of keep it functioning in that if one thing falls, the next thing will naturally follow is something that may not logically add up in a mathematical formula, but is something that we can kind of observably see every time. And so when we're warned off of this slippery slope idea, I think it's really trying to keep us from following, I think what was basic, you know, very basic communal logic, uh, very, very uh, kind of ancient understanding baked into our traditions and, and kind of our culture and our tabo taboos. And we're encouraged to avoid that, uh, you know, that kind of reasoning and, and instead, you know, kind of stick to the facts in a way that will make it easier to kind of slowly salami slice uh, away those kind of uh, restrictions and, and bring about certain outcomes. And we're going to be looking today at a couple of uh, different examples of kind of how that has worked. Uh, so the first one I want to look at here is a story out of, I believe, Virginia. Let me grab my, oh, my screen share isn't showing up there real quick. There we go. So wanted to share this story out of Virginia. While getting that up, I do think that it's rather important for the audience or any potential, you know, disaffected liberal who might be tuning in to hearing this. We're not throwing out the um, slippery slope fallacy writ large or outright or on its face. The fallacy does exist. You know, it's important. I think you hear it a lot with teachers when they say, you know, if you fail this math test, you'll you won't get into calculus next year and then you won't get into that master's program that you want. So you can't fail your math test, even though one test is going to be make or break for you to get into some sort of future course. But when it comes to the instance in politics, we really shouldn't be ignoring the very things that they say that they want to do or are going to do because of a previous example. So the uh, Virginia Elementary School here uh, forced to host a satanic after school program. Now, again, this is something that I, you know, we, we hear the satanic panic, right? The, the jokes about, uh, you know, in the 80s, there's all these uh, wild stories about, uh, you know, Satan worship and how this stuff will come around and it'll take hold and, you know, it, it'll dominate, you know, your children will be taught, you know, this, this idea that these places were being operated or that there was, uh, you know, uh, secret societies uh, happening inside childcare centers. Like this was all supposed to be very hyperbolic, very ridiculous is the kind of stuff that people would often mock that this kind of thing would be coming down the pipeline. But here we have a school district uh, that is apparently saying that it was required to host this. Now, uh, you can see the flyer here from the school uh, that went out. The uh, club has a little satanic uh, temple seal here with a animated Lucifer. Uh, of course, uh, the satanic temple bills itself as as ironic, right? It's the Satan's not real. This is a this is a, of course a, a a joke. We're just showing you know that we all need to be like good humanists and re religion is ridiculous, that kind of thing. But I do want to just go ahead and remind people that there is no such thing as uh, ironic Satan worship. Um, the the act of pretending that uh, the devil doesn't exist or that. These kind of things aren't serious, uh, trying to pretend that it's all tongue in cheek and, uh, you know, isn't actually something people are investing themselves in uh, is itself uh, kind of a satanic rejection of the understanding of uh, uh, of kind of the world, the biblical understanding of the world. Uh, but I don't think in the, end of the at the end of the day, even though people are pretending, trying to put on that they uh, they don't believe in this stuff, I think in the end it is actually a subversion uh, in a very real sense, but this is the kind of thing that people would have said, you know, absolutely impossible, can't happen, no way that, uh, you know, we would see this, you, you know, your crazy Southern Baptist uh, grandma would be insane for suggesting this is something that we would see, a, you know, a, a state-sponsored uh, activity in a, in a school, and yet, lo and behold, here we are, uh, you know, the, the school says it's compelled to uh, kind of support this inside a, not just any school, an elementary school here in Virginia. Well, this sort of comes in the, the long 
march of consequences. Again, sort of that legal aspect where Christianity is the dominant religion in the United States gets defanged in 1962 with regards to, to public prayer. And I think it's uh, Engel versus Vitali, where public prayer schools avoid, uh, violated the Establishment Clause. But, you know, I don't want to go into herder, they're hypocrites, because I feel like people heard that and know it from quite some time. But this does illustrate quite a few things, is that the legal parameters for like the traditional biblical or Christian understanding way that the world works and urging that to exist, not just inside the spaces of our, of our church grounds, whatever you may attend, um, it's been defanged for a while. And it does illustrate sort of, a, I think, 60 plus years now of learned, well, actually, literally 60 years of learned healthness from uh, religious conservatives for all of this lawfare that had been conducted in, say, 2020, especially with lockdowns. Uh, organizations like the PGI, the Pacific Justice Institute, and the rest, you know, these things are happening right before their eyes. The literal antithesis of Christianity, you know, promoting Satan himself uh, towards children. And what does this say? A, a public, does it say like an elementary school or something like mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Uh, it's even Just worse. a public school system. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're, you're in a position now where kids are being exposed to, once again, the worst possible ideas. Um, of course, they may say that it's to rebel or resist or to oppose. But, you know, it, to me, this is demonstrative of the fact that, um, you know, the satanic panic and everything that we've talked about that, yes, the, the conservative Christians from the 80s were probably right. And in fact, they've been sort of indicated. But we are certainly at a point now where we've been rather defanged. And what makes it worse, right, is that this kind of shows how far um, culture has fallen. I mean, there's a great meme that's been going around where it's like, what do you mean that 20 minutes of Sunday school every other week or so hasn't done anything to combat the 15,000 plus hours of socialization at public school a year and online and on their after school clubs? And I, I think it does illustrate and kind of indict a little bit of failure on sort of the religious conservatives on our end, especially for the last 60 years. Well, and I think you can tell this from the kind of response that you know, we, we see from people like David French, not to, you know, give David French any credit here. But he, unfortunately, his arguments are those that are not necessarily, you know, they, they are relative, even though many people don't like David French now, his arguments are ones that you hear echoed kind of constantly on the right at this point. I mean, it says here to the credit of the Chesapeake uh, school system that they were kind of apologetic about this saying that like we didn't really want to have this but we had to our lawyers said we were legally required you know to to put this out and kind of host this this viewpoint neutrality and i think this is really kind of the the amazing failure the retreat of kind of the the religious right and the, you know like you said the um kind of the things they've been willing to put up with and the positions they've been willing to kind of yield to here in the last few decades in, for the vast majority of American history, it would have been very clear to pretty much everyone in the country that the right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion did not require the state to facilitate a club for the worship of Satan, right? Like the, that would have been a very obvious thing for the vast majority of people that the expression of religious viewpoints and the ability of people to speak freely would not have required the state to host something like this. But because the religious right has kind of retreated so consistently back to the point where viewpoint neutrality is now kind of their calling card guys like david french will say that this kind of stuff is a blessing of liberty right it's the same argument as the drag queen story are we have to allow this in order to allow sunday schools to meet in in you know or, or christian clubs to meet in school so without you know without the satan club we don't get the christian club and without drag time story hour we can't have you know bible studies and so uh, you know this is the argument that gets put forward and unfortunately i think a lot of even conservatives and christians have accepted this as like the necessary trade-off at this point they might balk at the idea of a satan club for children but at the end of the day they've kind of bought into the legal framework and the cultural framework of of viewpoint neutrality that leads to exactly this to some extent yeah i can understand how the legal viewpoint of neutrality probably does allow them to exist these christian clubs or, or bible studies club after school and so on because uh, the the religiosity of the country has just been so effectively neutered for decades now to where 
you know, church going people have gone less and less. How many churches did not open back up or congregations split apart after 2020? And sort of this has just been the long march of Ting and Dem, you know, just going through the lines and trying to take away what had already existed. And what makes it worse, of course, is, is that this is anchored towards children, as if, you know, here in the United States, we don't have a problem when it comes to advertisements, whether it's the recent um, fashion advertisement scandal, the problems of Discord or, um, you know, even Reddit with its egg IRL. You know, uh, St. Basil the Great says hell can't be made attractive. The devil makes the road to it very attractive. And we should be kind of careful that we're, you know, allowing this sort of aspect towards it there. And when we talk about freedom of speech or the separation of church and state, a lot of that works and works fine and dandy when there is sort of a homogeneity to or the religiosity. I mean, America is founded on a variety of forms of Protestantism and Christianity in that regard. So. I mean, it didn't stop people from killing Quakers, things like that early in the colonial history. But when it's a nominally Christian country, it kind of makes it easy to have a freedom of separation of church and state. But now when the state is telling, you know, the dominant cultural moral paradigm of the country, no, you kind of have to allow children to worship the devil, regardless of whether you think it's not said it's forced or mandated, not yet, but... To me, it does illustrate that there are some significant lack of teeth on sort of the right side when it comes to these legal issues, despite having the infrastructure for it. And that if, and it also kind of illustrates, I think, some of the problems that we have with religion being a motivating political action in here. You know, William T. Kavanaugh wrote a great book in 2009 called The Myth of Religious Violence that, you know, outside of the Western world, you know, the religious, the religious political divide of separation of church and state is a very foreign and new concept to them. To them, religion is part of life. And for us, we've been so deracinated being so part and parcel of our day to day life that this stuff happens and people get surprised. Yeah, I would think that the, yeah, like you said, the ability to really think that these things could be completely separated, that you can have, you know, values and religiosity completely removed from the public square in a way that could be truly neutral was kind of always an illusion, always something that's ridiculous, that the, these things will always be informed, the public, these public spaces, the culture will always be informed by some level of religiosity. And if you don't have something like Christianity, being a shared consensus inside your country, then you're going to kind of naturally lead to this kind of stuff. And and again, it's being held up as tongue in cheek, of course, by you know the Satanic Temple. It's not real. They're you know they they really believe in this stuff, that kind of thing. But I, I think at this point, you would hope people would understand that that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, also, you know, as this stuff erodes and people are allowed to do this kind of stuff mockingly at first it kind of opens them up to taking it more seriously later and again even if they do or are doing this in a completely mocking fashion a completely unrealistic fashion the fact that they are actively attempting to kind of subvert the idea of religion in general again kind of leaves people defenseless to be they end up being these kind of ideologically empty vessels that can be filled up by the first thing that kind of portrays itself as secular, but in the end actually has a lot of religious connotations when it comes to values and worldview. Well, absolutely. And even here, it says it right there in the article, this has been approved to hold events at another, ele you know, elementary school. So we're talking about, you know, pre youth being exposed to things that, uh, the imagery, of course, leads to a variety of other things when people seek an alternative lifestyle. I feel like I'm repeating myself as I've you know, every other conservative parent talking point for the last 50 years, that once you do go down these roads, it's very hard to walk back from them. I think we're seeing this even more so in full-throated force when it comes to detransitioned minors and people in their early 20s wanting to sue doctors. Uh, this is how it works, is that they get them young, because when an ideology that has no pro sentiments, no pro-life sentiments, the only way that it can thrive, survive, and reduce is to target the children of the innocent. And that's what's going to keep going on there. Absolutely. So we're going to move on from that story because I think we've kind of gotten that thoroughly here. The next one is going to be about Canada. So for those who haven't been paying attention, Canada has kind of slid into a rather dystopian state. Of course, we know that Canada had this very extreme lockdown policy uh, was uh, kind of destroying the lives of anyone who wouldn't take uh, the vaccine there. Uh, anyone who protested it 
could have their bank accounts stolen, the family members of people who were attending the protest or anyone who financially supported those people could also have their bank accounts raided. You know, Canada has really been um, destroying you know, kind of kind of the rights of its people on a regular basis. I, I think they can finally leave if they're unvaccinated, but for for a while, for a long time there, you couldn't even leave the country. You couldn't flee to another country unless you had kind of complied with the government mandate when it comes to vaccination. So Canada's really been unconcerned with kind of the, the rights of its citizens for quite a while now, which is always hilarious when you then see Justin Trudeau get up there and start lecturing different uh, different governments on the way that they treat their people, their human rights. You know, Justin Trudeau getting up there and lecturing uh, the, the leadership of Iran on uh, you know, uh, not allowing protests while he uh, locks people up and steals their bank accounts is pretty ridiculous. But, you know, that's not the only area in which Canada has kind of become a dystopian hellscape. One of the areas that has been, you know, kind of fitting into our slippery slope theme today is the medically assisted death, the medically assisted suicide that has really become a huge part of the Canadian healthcare system at this point. You know, there's a lot of people who uh, really got on to like Sarah Palin uh, when she talked about death panels in the United States when it came to socialist healthcare, And, you know, understandably, I guess at the time seemed very hyperbolic, right? Just because the government is taking care of people doesn't mean it's going to suddenly start signing people up for euthanasia, right? But we've kind of seen this slowly but surely creep into the Canadian landscape. Now, this you know, story is from a while ago. It's, a, you know, uh, from 2017 about how medically assisted suicide could save money, right? So we already kind of see this aspect of saving uh, money when it comes to rationing care in, uh, in Canada. We'll go ahead and encourage people, you know, to kind of make this decision so that we'll be able to save more uh, when it comes to long-term care. But it gets a lot darker here. I'm going to pull up a few of these. Um, where is there's so many that I want to go ahead and just get them in order here. You know, I, I do think that this is one part of a consequence that comes with um, sort of a downfall of the pandemic but also sort of secularization in both places like the uk and canada uh the uk of course had you know it's the clap for nhs or, or nhs it was even a, a big argument that came for brexit um canada's care or its national um you know health service as well had had a lot of stress during the pandemic and had faced a lot more um strain before came to the issues say in regards to immigration and the numbers to pay for it and those that could actually carry the tax burden. And so, of course, the pandemic comes around and you pair secularization, which takes away people's, you know, fear, takes actually, it brings people's fears about death. As, as a Christian, I don't fear death. I, I fear the judgment that comes thereafter. But, you know, when people are looking for a secular God or an altar to pray to, and the state provides one, uh, you know, that point that G.K. Titterton makes about once people get rid of God, the government becomes God. In this instance, it's the the socialized healthcare, and you mentioned Sarah Palin, and I know a lot of people laughed about the uh, Obamacare death panels thing, but boy, oh boy, did that come true in other countries to where now we have advertisements that are focusing on people to promote what they call assistance in dying. There have been numerous profiles of people that will face economic hardship, say, well, I'm threatening to have my home foreclosed, so I'm going to take the uh, quote-unquote easy way out, and I'm going to embrace medical assistance in dying. And, you know, as the article shows right here, you know, this medical assisted death program allowed boon for organ donation. So we're, we're getting sort of the Soylent Green style utilitarianism to deal with certain people that we can offer you the easy way out. And there's another story with a Canadian disabled veteran that wanted a, a stair ramp access because she has a wheelchair and they offered medical assistance and dying instead. And so we are now sacrificing our own population. Um before the altar of the healthcare service to let people know, oh, you know, if if you uh, want to really save our our medical service, if you really want to make way for progress, then we're going to offer you the easy way out with a quick and painless death, which is the most undignified way possible to go. Because anyone who's been around those who have, you know, who've been on deathbed or dying know that they will 
they typically fight tooth and nail to stay on for a few more moments, whether it's for religious reasons, to see family, to get one more phone call. Uh, and this is just absolutely terrifying to realize. And I don't know how much of this is, you could say, slippery slope because, you know, because of nationalized healthcare, we got to this. But I do think it has a lot to do with more of a theistic, so afraid of dying or death, something that I can just be very ironic about. I think that we see that a lot these days where young people are very ironic about their idea of, you know, ending their own lives or engaging in that kind of discussion that, um, I think people start taking it a little more seriously and a little less ironic. And here we go uh, with people saying, hey, this is the way to go. Take yourself out. Yeah, I think you're right that in this case, what we have is a, an intersection of a number of different slippery slopes, right? That we have you know, this approach to kind of human well-being that, uh, like you said, pe people no longer, you know, have an investment in kind of uh, the, the value of human life, it's no longer seen as sacred. It's no longer linked to, you know, the, the value that's granted it by something beyond this world. And then we also see the kind of slippery slope of the expansion of the state into decisions that it, you know, kind of previously never would have had domain over and kind of the natural utilitarian bean counting spreadsheet aspect uh, that that kind of comes once the state has to make you know decisions about this stuff when it's uh, got limited resources, as you were saying, you know we had we had that story with the Canadian veteran and she she asked for the chairlift and it was taking too long and so someone kind of suggested that she might you know need to look into the medically assisted dying and then we have very disturbing stories like this you know you talked about the the financial hardship one there's uh, the the story that uh, Canadian television did kind of this sympathetic story about how you know home prices in Canada are skyrocketing and the the cost of living in Canada is skyrocketing and therefore you know more and more homeless people or people who are living on the edge are considering this this medically assisted dying as a solution to this and then we also see you know canada allowing the medically assisting of the mentally ill and it's one of those things where you know, you look at these scenarios and you know if I, I i might be wrong on this but i believe canada does not have capital punishment right like they see themselves as a very progressive society one that wouldn't allow you know people to be put to death for this by the state for a crime but they're going to allow mentally ill people to be put to death. You know, the very, you know, something, you know, very extremely eugenic, something extreme, you know, a lot, a lot of people would say would, would be, you know, uh, some far right, you know, idea is something that they're super comfortable with uh, when it comes to allowing it as part of this medic, uh, medically assisted dying program. And so we see, you know, the, these states that otherwise would be very offended by the idea that the, that the government would put people to death saying, no, it's fine that we would just, you know, go ahead and allow, you know, the poor or uh, the, the mentally unfit uh, to, to make a choice to do this kind of thing, if they're even capable of making that kind of choice. It's it's rather insane. Also, you know, as you're pointing out, the the you know financial strain on these kind of things. Many of these countries that have these much larger welfare states, what a lot of people would call socialized medicine, like the UK and Canada, you know, these are countries that have been allowing large amounts of mass immigration here recently. They've been allowing a large increase in the number of people who are allowed to come in and take advantage of the you know the the different uh, benefits of the state including health care they're often people who are also doing things like taking up large amounts of uh housing and increasing the cost of housing so you know people who are native to the uk or native to canada are being kind of forced out of their own housing having the price increases the cost of living increases inside their country due to the mass immigration you're seeing increased strain on these country systems because of the pressure to allow this kind of mass migration into their country and then their solution for this is of course not to close the borders or to limit the amount of uh, you know asylum seekers who are allowed in the country to kind of you know pare back some of this stuff but their solution is to ramp up 
the availability of people to kind of end their lives if they can no longer deal with the financial hardship introduced by the very policies of the government in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this is like that commercial that they had, which was sponsored by a fashion company to promote medical assistance. Dying had profiled and followed someone who had went through the process. It was the incredibly most least diverse commercial I had ever seen in 2022 year of our Lord. And to me, it really does illustrate some of the greater problems going to come ahead with this is that rather than address the problems, it is the, you know, almost a Jonathan Swift style modest proposal that will simply get rid of those people that can't afford it and can't supplement our, our system to bring our people over. And we'll just, you know, have them literally be eaten by the state in this regard. And we'll have their organs transplanted and traffic them out for the purposes of keeping the medical system alive. And so by, you know, deifying your health service, by, you know, not illustrating the cultural rot at hand, the state has come to the raw Machiavellian consequence and logical conclusion that actually it's easier to just kill you. And once you start devaluing the life of, you know, citizenry, at what point do you really have a country anymore? And to what makes matters worse is, is that what's going to really come out from this is going to be, well, you know, people are going to willingly accept it. Um, and to me, I, I don't think you could really call Canada in the same way you can't really call the United States a, a predominantly religious country. It's very secular in its regard. And now we've got our own death cult going on. And this is a suicide contagion that is state sanctioned and promoted by the government. Yeah, you know, um, uh, our, our friend Morgoth has said many times that uh, that the UK is uh, now kind of a, a health system with a uh, government attached, you know, with, with a country attached and that the main, you know, kind of binding identity of that country is now primarily the healthcare system as opposed to any kind of national unity or, or, or any kind of value to the individual um, uh, citizen as part of a uh, you know, larger community. And it, it's really wild to see kind of the way that uh, that kind of plays out and how that's treated when you know, individuals are, are, are really treated like completely interchangeable widgets here in the story from Barry Weiss's uh, Common Sense uh, uh, substack. They have the story of, uh, I think, several different uh, young people who are slated for this kind of voluntary um, assisted dying. Uh, based on things like, you know, 23 year olds who are depressed because their girlfriend broke up with them. I think there was one, uh, one guy who's in his early twenties who just didn't want to live with diabetes and his nurse mother learned about that. And, you know, th this, this person was encouraged to kind of go down this track of possibly pursuing assisted dying simply because they find diabetes to be a difficult diagnosis to kind of handle early on. This kind of stuff where just the smallest level of kind of life difficulty is immediately given this, you know, this option of people just opting out and instead embracing uh, the, the possibility of state assisted, uh, you know, uh, end of life suicide here is just really wild. There's another one you sent to me and I'm going to grab that story real quick um, about how large the number of people dying is. I believe it was 10,000 plus deaths here. Here we go. 10,000 plus uh, Canadians leave, uh, receive medically assisted suicide, which is, I think it said, yeah, three 3.3% of all deaths in Canada are part of this assisted suicide program. And it, it again, it, like you said, it's this intersection of many different kind of slippery slopes. And again, another thing where people like Sarah Palin would have been mocked, you know, oh, this is going to lead here inevitably. This is a logical conclusion of rationed health care and, and the many different people who have pointed out that kind of the abandoning of uh, you know, Christianity and general religiosity would eventually lead to kind of this degradation of life and the value of life. Like you were talking about all this kind of intersecting in, in a rather dystopian way in Canada to the point where now, a, you know, assisted government uh, provided uh, a suicide now, you know, uh, making up a large, a pretty noticeable percentage of deaths in Canada in 2021. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the bigger consequences, I think, that comes with just the people were sort of given a lot of opportunities to sort of just quit life. I think when people were to stay home and to, you know, uh, either play along and play ball with the system or face the consequences. And I think a lot of people even here in the States where people enjoyed their stimulus checks or their, um, you know, having their rent more or less put on hold, like almost two years in some parts of the country. And it allowed people to sort of check out and whether that meant, you know, seeing people, who needed cancer screens not get them or people engaging in their vices like alcoholism or drug abuse or simply being alone, alone locked down with an abusive couple or something like that. And, you know, people aren't working in the way that they are. We have a huge labor problem in the United States and in other parts of the West. And I do think a lot of part of that is just that people decided to check out. The economy is not doing great. The jobs aren't paying what they used to. And so there's not much really going for us writ large in terms of in terms of purpose or a motivating or animating drive or belief to do so. And so for the population that they're seemingly primarily targeting, at least in advertisements and elsewhere, is to say, well, there is an alternative. You could just die. And that seems to be the uh, option that they're going for here. And the guidelines, I think, have been as firmly set. I know that there's been a large bioethic debate about this for decades. But when you take away people's reason to live and you offer them a quick and painless way out, as it was said in Barry Weiss's article, where it's just like, oh, this procedure will be done in just, you know, in a few minutes after we get started at nine o'clock in the morning, just like that, then what is going to come is that even the depressed, only people in the world will be offered a way out of it. Um, what would almost be the point then of a, of a helpline if that's sort of the option that people can pursue to do so now? I don't know if it's going to be openly encouraged. I mean, we've seen one advertisement. I don't want, you know, to be in part of today's stream and title, I don't want to simply say that this is going to be a, a promoted or advertised event, sort of like Futurama's uh, suicide booth, you know, in places where people work. But I, I do think that we're heading down a pathway that they're not going to be able to climb back up from. Because once you start offering this as an alternative, especially to the young and the lonely or the depressed, um, then those issues will never be ever actualized or addressed because the alternative is to simply take the easy way out. Yeah, and I think you, you've brought up a couple of times something that I should probably stop and, and focus on because I hadn't thought about it a lot um, kind of before you mentioned it, but it makes perfect sense. The, the aspect of the lockdown and how much, especially when it comes to Canada where that lockdown is was very excessive and the restrictions were extreme and people just got used to kind of turning really essential aspects of their lives over to the government, um, to, to trusting the government and, 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 and assuming that the government had, a, you know, the ability to completely dictate how they would spend their lives, where they would go, who they would see, what they could do. Uh, and so people kind of ceding this control over to the government and having that level of comfort and uh, expectation with uh, the government's kind of an invasion into their uh, private lives and their ability to live them probably had a big uh, impact on the embrace of this and the willingness of people to embrace this. And like you said, also the kind of the, the walls closing in on so many people in the economy, the way that the, their lives were set up, their ability to form families, own a home, have a promising career, when all of those things are kind of taken away from people and they feel like all the avenues for a better life are kind of shut down, then for people who have kind of expected those things, I think uh, as kind of a natural progression of their lives, it does feel like there aren't a lot of options left and people are willing to kind of opt in to this, this easy solution again, especially when, you know, life has been kind of cheapened and, and given less of a, you know, a, a supernatural meaning, you know, something beyond, uh, beyond uh, the kind of the current difficulties that's worth pushing past, you know, uh, I think that really does, kind of steal that future from people and does give them a lot of difficulty. But uh, since, seeing as we've talked about nothing but really happy things, maybe we can, uh, before we get, because we've got a number of uh, super chats stacking up here, I was going to pivot very quickly to something kind of funny that happened right before we got on. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the Twitter files 
Um, I have a, a piece that'll probably be coming out with the blaze tomorrow on the Twitter file. So, and, and I've got a couple of, I think, uh, r- really interesting guests, really great guests that you guys will be excited to see here. That'll be coming on this week to talk about the Twitter files. I'm probably going to spend the rest of the week on the channel here talking about it. Cause I think it really is a huge story. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to come kind of break it down here completely. Cause I, I will be spending a lot of time during the rest of the week talking about it, but a lot of people I'm sure know that kind of, we saw this evidence that was released by Elon Musk through Matt Taibbi on uh, on Substack and and through his thread on Twitter uh, kind of releasing the internal documents the smoking gun when it came to the collusion inside of Twitter when it came to to censoring the 2020 uh story about Hunter Biden and his laptop and the New York Post and and everything involved in that and of course Donald Trump uh came out on on his truth social account and kind of did a very awkward post about the possible need to suspend the constitution or, or other processes because basically this had already violated those things and it was now necessary to kind of throw out those you know that that stuff because the the, the system was broken and and we were not going to have real elections that the kind of sanctity of the election had already been violated and so of course uh, all of a sudden a lot of people on the left and i include john bolton with people on the left uh, got up in arms about this response by Trump. They got up in arms uh, over this response by Trump, and they started you know, doing a lot of uh, pearl clutching when it came to the Constitution. All of a sudden, they care a lot about what the Constitution says. They didn't care about it when uh, people were violating the First Amendment, uh, when there was collusion between uh, the government, the, the federal government and political parties and and private corporations to, you know, uh, keep Donald or to, to, to try to suppress a story that could have been dangerous to Joe Biden and could have elevated Donald Trump. But that, that all that's fine. That's that's not a problem. But when Donald Trump talks about the uh, Constitution, all of a sudden they care deeply. They all become members of the Federalist Society. But uh, but uh, John Bolton here. Uh, kind of announces on a meet the press that he might be willing to jump into the race and save, you know, the GOP from uh, the, the extra constitutional uh, attempts at uh, uh, of uh, Donald Trump to, to kind of circumvent the election and rewrite the constitution here. Um, and I just thought it was funny because uh, as I was talking with the Prince out about, you know, John Bolton did run for president before. This is actually not the first time that John Bolton has announced uh, his, his run for president. And uh, you said you were like the only person of your generation who might remember that. <laughs> yeah, he, he had a short presidential run in 2012. He was offered by Newt Gingrich the spot for secretary of state for the ultimate, you know, no conservative uh, administration, but it later endorsed Romney when he had dropped the race. But yeah, I mean, also the same guy that wrote or ghost wrote, you know, the, the room where it, um so it really does you know if really wanted to do damage to trump i mean he would just simply start laughing his mouth more and not tend to run for president but uh nevertheless i i find it funny the guy that you know helped architect and and move along with the global frontier and bring about all of the uh, totalitarian security state stuff from the 9-11 age to really get up in arms about my constitution, this, you know, document that men, the uh, National Security Administration probably wiped their rear ends with is laughable at best, but demonstrative that a lot of these things that, you know, we hold in American society, what I call the classic, um, you know, Ameri- the classic American civil religion is, uh, you know, something that is only used as a post hoc justification to maintain power, just as you guys like to say, um, it's not uh, it's not your democracy, it's their democracy and things like that. It's just another tool for them to, to really care about and get up in arms with. But yeah, John Bolton, uh, you know, the mustache is nice, but the rest of him, not so much. Yeah, that, that was actually his symbol. That was his campaign symbol, by the way, for people who don't know, was the mustache. <laughs> it, was a, it was just a red uh, background with a with a mustache. Um, but yeah, there there is something particularly adorable about uh, this man who... Uh, like he said, basically has used the the Constitution as as waste paper 
while he uh, plans to subvert the, the rights of uh, Americans through all kinds of uh, war on terror exclusions and the fact that he like regularly you know was involved in planning coups across the 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 globe uh, you know then you know getting getting all butt hurt about uh, trump talking about the constitution is pretty great so like i said i just wanted to jump in and, and throw that meme out there the the uh the uh everything coming up john bolton meme here just so we could have a good laugh after all that depressing stuff that we were talking about here you know uh, but- I, I have to i have to laugh real quick because i i had to i looked up john bolton's height and he's five seven of course, yeah, of course he is. Yeah, of course he is. Five seven. Vladimir Zelensky's five seven. You know this manlit theory of history is really yes. coming up, John Bolton, isn't it? Yeah, I, I made a joke. There was um, there there was the story about the the height extensions. I'm sure you've seen uh, yeah. the you know the the people paying to to get a couple extra inches in height so they can they can hit that magical six uh, foot mark. And uh, and I was just like, yeah, guys, just conquer a continent to compensate, like like you know, return to tradition, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, John Bolton um, certainly did that throughout his career. <laughs> yeah, multiple, multiple. Uh, so yeah, he 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 stuck with tradition in that uh, area, one hundred percent. Right? It's if you can't be six foot, you might as well topple several uh, governments in the name of uh, freedom and democracy. Uh, that that certainly will show all the kids who made fun of you in high school. Um. But that said, let's go ahead and start uh, get started on these uh, on these super chats here. Uh, there's one that got turned in early before we got started, so I can't put it on the screen, but I'll read it out here. Uh, Evan M, thank you for your donation. Looks like ten dollars in Canadian. Thank you very much. Sorry about your country. Um, he says, uh, if you're looking for the best babysitter, it's uh, technically ad hominem to exclude convicted sex offenders. Something can be a productive logical fallacy, but still be a perfectly valid heuristic. And yeah, yeah, I, I see what you mean there. The idea that, um, you know, even if something uh, is technically a logical fallacy, if it's a value heuristic, that's that's kind of enough. And I think that's kind of what we were hinting at when it came to uh, to the slippery slope. We're not, as Prudential has pointed out, we're not throwing at the idea that there is a, a technical fallacy called the slippery slope, uh, but that the general attack on kind of uh, noticing and, and, and pattern recognition when it comes to the consequences of different uh, social, uh, the, the kind of the dispensing of certain social taboos uh, is, is still, uh, th- that doesn't work. It, it is still valuable to kind of have that understanding of the way societies function. Yeah, you, you need that heuristic, um, you know, as Steve Saylor says, you know, political correctness is just a war on pattern recognition. It's the same reason why all the new monkey pox coverage went away. So even though things, yes, can still exist as technical fallacy, uh, trusting your gut based upon trends and what's out there in the news and just connecting dots will do you a lot of good in life and you should be uh, smart to keep to it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, falling outside the normal moral constraints for $2, Slippery Slope remains the undefeated champion. Yep, that's that's one of my favorites on um, on uh, Twitter. One of those things that I repeat uh, regularly because there's kind of pretty much always relevant. Uh, whether you like it or not, the Slippery Slope is a, is a constant and you ignore it at your own peril here. Its record is quite excellent. Uh, we've got Roach here for $5. Thank you very much, sir. The slippery slope is a war on pattern recognition, something that can't be allowed in an empire of lies. Yeah, that's a really important aspect, right? So much of what we're asked to believe kind of by the the zeitgeist, by the the current uh, kind of regime and, and, and its uh, need to kind of impose this, uh, all, uh, this artificial worldview on people, this artificial understanding of human nature and the way that uh, the world works is really this, you have to stop people from making basic connections from making basic uh, linkage. It's really important to kind of confound people and mystify the connections between really basic things. So they can't kind of don't notice the level of kind of perversion, the level of, uh, of warped reality that is required to kind of be layered over their basic observations in order to kind of function in society the way they're asked to today. Well, absolutely. And I mean, even the old school libertarians like Murray Rothbard and such would tell you that to get a pattern recognition and go full on with egalitarianism is a revolt against nature and a revolt against, you know, basic reality and truth in and of itself. So, yeah, uh, it's a war on pattern recognition. Absolutely. 
Pete Budapest here for 1999. Thank you very much, Pete. He says, uh, nothing illustrates the power uh, paradigm in America better than the gay marriage issue today. We have the same position as Obama from 10 years ago. It's not just political suicide. You lose your job and have your kids taken away. And yeah, like this is this is something that I, I bring up constantly because it's such a very clear and obvious thing that anyone can notice right away, right? Something, a position that is would have been too radical for Barack Obama in 2008 um, and, and beyond uh, today is is required. It's required. Uh, that's a required position in basically every company, every government agency, any kind of public life. And if you disagree, you know you're you're a uh, you know completely banned from kind of public life. You can easily, like I said, lose your job. You can have uh, very serious consequences culturally when it comes by. And so we can see, you know, th this is also the, the the Cthulhu swims slowly, but it always swims left, right? Except we're now we're kind of on a jet ski you know that the average republican in the senate now seems to have a position that was far too radical on marriage for barack obama just a, a decade or so ago and it seems like there's kind of no uh, slowing down in that direction yeah i mean this is the i mean we saw this earlier this month with or last month with the respective marriage act trying to codify um interracial and uh same-sex marriage uh, into law that way you know that thinly um alluded to uh, from uh clarence thomas in the supreme court saying that those cases are definitely up on the title um or possibly up on the chopping block you know now they're codified mitt romney had flipped his position from 10 years ago when he ran for president in 2012 and you know it's almost as if the last really since 2015 and a little bit earlier onward we just decided to give Panzer Chocolat to what we would consider progressivism or modernity. And, you know, they've just gone full speed ahead and this is where we're at now. And even, you know, traditional Christians will definitely lose their job or risk the running of losing their job. If they, you know, stand against things that were just considered to be normal majority uh, thinking points and talking points from even 10 years ago. And this is where we're at. Yeah. How, how does this affect your marriage? Seems like a quaint, uh, quaint slogan right now like that, that that thing that was constantly pushed now seems uh seems kind of adorable in retrospect so roach here again for five dollars tune in to find out who better predicted the 21st century college educated intellectuals or southern grandmas the answer may surprise you uh yeah and i think that's really important right like one of the things that it, it's of course not to say that education is invaluable it's not to say that you know there there's no value in in kind of a formal education because there there are you know certain areas where that is essential but you know the there is there's been a complete discarding of kind of the power of tradition the the combined social knowledge that's carried forward you know that that's encoded these lessons that were kind of uh, learned at high prices by our predecessors and built into kind of the things that we do and the and the kind of the common sense that we learned and through the generations and and you know we kind of see these things iterated over and over again i'm always remember i always remember this has always struck me you know i came home a very ignorant uh, college student in kind of my first year of college. And I had taken my first economics class and my teacher had kind of explained Keynesian economics to me. And I came home and I, I told my mom about kind of Keynesian economics. And my mom kind of looked at me and, and you know, she's uh, she she went to college, but it was a, you know, a difficult thing for her. The, you know, formal education was kind of not her strong suit. But she looked at me and as I was explaining Keynesian economics to her, and she said, well, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And of course she was right, right? Like, like that, <laughs> she, she was far wiser than my economics professor um, because she just had a very, she didn't put on airs, right? She didn't, she hadn't confounded herself. She hadn't had, you know, kind of the, the, the basic truth of, of, of the world mystified for her by kind of uh, the, these uh, theories that were kind of bunk. And uh, so I always kind of remember that when uh, we talk about this kind of stuff, because I think that that kind of wisdom is is very valuable, but something we've been trained out of valuing in our society. Yeah, and it does illustrate really long destruction and rot of cultural cohesion and connection that we don't trust the uh, our, our elders, but rather a mysterious, unrelated uh, class of so-called experts. 
Let's say here, Pete Budapest for $19.99 again. Thank you very much, Pete. Uh, Dave, the distributors had the best own of a David French talk. Uh, French pontificated, if your criteria is free speech for me, but not for thee, you better hope the me is always in charge. And Dave just paused the video and laughed. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, Dave has done a lot of great videos on there. I think uh, one of the better ones, I, I, I remember it's been a long time, but I'm pretty sure Dave did a video kind of on the, uh, David French Sarabamari debate uh, a long time ago. That was particularly good. I don't remember all the different aspects of it, uh, but but I do remember it being uh, very good and kind of pointing out. I mean, again, David French is is kind of an easy punching bag. I try hard not to spend too much time giving him any credit. He's just he's just a leftist with extra steps, guys. It's like like I, I know he's supposed to have been a conservative and he's supposed to have these convictions. He doesn't. He just he's getting paid by people to to hate uh, conservative, just like so many other people are uh, he, he's just a leftist with extra steps there's you don't have to give him credit he doesn't he doesn't deserve any of it um let's see uh winter ec here for 20 dollars says how do you separate the slippery slope fallacy from reasonable concern over possible unintended consequences any caution regarding unintended consequences equals bigotry and phobia etc how do you handle this when discussing this with liberal friends yeah no i mean that's a huge part of it right and and you know kind of the funny thing about the slippery slope fallacy is while a lot of people will attack, you know, the slippery slope and fallacy when you say, hey, this is the kind of the inevitable conclusion of what you're talking about. They will then bring it in almost immediately when it comes to things like bigotry, right? They'll say, well, if you believe this or if you think, you know, if you if you oppose immigration, uh, mass immigration, then you're just one step away from the you know, right? And so like this is something it's one of those arguments that's very convenient uh, people will completely forget their objection to the slippery slope uh, fallacy when they themselves would like to uh, illustrate the obvious linkage of something and, and point to their own slippery slope, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the best way to point this out, and, and I'm always cautious, again, guys, uh, you know, you, you everyone kind of has to evaluate the, this for themselves, but I only have conversations with friends uh, and, and acquaintances that I, when I think they're going to be interested in moving things together. I don't, I don't have a lot of debates with people in my personal life, right? I mean, most people in my personal life kind of know where I am politically. So I don't, I don't end up with a lot of like heated, heated discussions. Like if we're already friends, if we're already interacting, then it, it's not a huge deal, right? If we disagree on this kind of stuff, we've, we're already at a point where we can do that in a civil manner. But even with my friends who I do disagree with, I don't really like seek out, I don't hunt down and try to nail people down kind of over positions where they disagree with me on. If, if someone is interested in really having a back and forth and really exploring an issue, I'm happy to do so. But I've never, this is why I don't really go out seeking debates when it comes to, you know, internet stuff or, or new stuff either. I don't really think it's very valuable. I don't think it's very productive. I'm always interested in kind of a back and forth. I talk to people on the show all the time who I disagree with, you know, guys like, I don't know, Glenn Greenwald, right? We disagree on all kinds of stuff, but I had a really, you know, productive conversation with Glenn. And I think I probably will again here soon, you know, because Glenn's not just interested in spiking a ball or scoring points. He's really interested in kind of having, a, having a back and forth, even if we might walk away completely disagreeing still, you know, like I, there, there's just, there's some kind of ground that allows us to have a conversation there but i don't really go around hunting and you know for conversations with people who are going to like be completely closed off and be very aggressive about stuff i just i just don't think it's valuable if people are open to kind of exploring something and willing to do that but i would encourage you to just not worry much about trying to force people who aren't going to take discussions in good faith into them because i just don't think it takes anywhere productive you're going to have difficulty when you're in polite company where they may disagree with you. Like, Oren, I try my best not to go out of my way to find arguments or to debate and own the libs like it's 2015, because there is little to no value in that if the last five, six years have really grown anything. If you're in that sort of polite company situation, you really do have two options. One, you try and articulate it in their framework. So, for instance, the mass immigration thing, right? Um, Philip Cafaro has a really good book called How Many is Too Many, The Progressive Case for Reducing Immigration to the United States. 
that's a, a entry way to talk about what his concerns are, which range on everything from the environment to other minorities being attacked or so on and so forth. Really, you should try your best not to go out for it. If the parentheses friend, uh, like R, like saying maybe like a normie Republican or something, I mean, you, you're going to have to just go off and say that you just reject maybe certain principles of egalitarianism or that these unintended consequences are the thing. I mean, there's a reason why there's something called the paradox of female happiness, that the more and more liberated women have become, the more and more unhappy they are in the West uh, as the years get closer to present day. So like Oren, I try my best not to go out of my way and start these debates or conversations. I don't find much value in polemics unless it's with people I agree with, but have disagreement on some issues. But uh, you're going to have to either go head on and see what you believe in or try and work it within their frame, but it's usually unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Glow in the dark here for $2 Canadian mercy equals forced assisted suicide. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, unfortunately, I feel like that's gotta be the case. I feel like you're, you're dressing it up with, with certain levels of, um, you know, again, uh, you can, you can clinicot met or sorry, medicalize it. I don't know what I was trying to say there for a minute. Uh, you, you can try to medicalize it. You can kind of wrap it in a level of, uh, sophistication and, and, and the language of, uh, uh this kind of stuff but i think at the end of the day that that really what it is especially again when you look at you know their their willingness to incorporate the mentally ill or the the homeless the the those who are under financial distress willingness to entertain young people who are just having you know rough times in their 20s look guys i i had rough times in my 20s it, it's going to be okay you don't have to seek the assistance of state to, to to end it like that's kind of an insane thing and I, it's hard not to draw the uh kind of the uh conclusion that you're pointing to there glow in the dark i think you're right about that let's see uh i watches the watchman for ten dollars thank you very much in 2004 as mayor of san francisco gavin newsom made a name for himself by issuing same-sex marriage certificates in 2020 as governor he signed a bill to help put male prisoners in uh, women's prisons. I mean, yeah, there's, there is again, a lot of linkage linkage when it comes to subversion, right? When you're willing to dissolve one standard, you will immediately kind of, uh, trend towards another. This is a, a general, there, there's always power in dissolving, uh, kind of the established standard. Uh, that's what a, a lot of the, progressive dialectic is kind of centered around is is the ability to break down these bonds and kind of get the the, the free energy that is created uh the the loose political power that is created when you're able to break down kind of these pre-existing barriers and so one thing kind of leads to another even not just in the slippery slope sense but in like this is the general goal of progressivism this is how the political coalition generates power is by continually searching for the next tradition the next barrier the next bond that it can kind of dissolve in order to kind of consume the energy that's held within and uh, this is this is something i actually talked about glenn beck with uh today so you can again you can check that interview out if you like uh, or that that segment it wasn't a full interview but i was on on his radio show for uh, for kind of the the top of the hour there so you can check that out but I, I think that's a theme that we kind of kind of see in progressivism and their political uh formula over and over again yeah when you have a politics based solely on transgression or liberation the only thing that that fundamentally leads to is politics the anti-civilization that's exactly right Oflamo here for $5. Thank you very much. I am a manlet. I am filled with lots of wrath right now. <laughs> You're adding some more fuel to my fire. Well, sir, there's only one conclusion that you can draw from this, and that's, this is that you should probably dominate a good chunk of Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I wish you well in your world domination plans. Just remember, not Russia in the winter, okay? If I have one piece of advice for you, uh, just just avoid trying to march, march uh, to Moscow in the winter. Though. And if all else fails, you can work on John Bolton's presidential campaign. <laughs> you, can, you can join the mustache crew there, right? Uh, let's see. I think that might be everybody. Let me double check before we go, just so I don't miss anyone. Okay, yep, I think that was everybody. We made it through. All right, guys, well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, as always, uh, The Prudentials is an excellent co-host, and I really appreciate him being, being here. Prudentials, I, th I think you said you were working on a piece for the Old Glory Club that we could be looking forward to soon? 
Yes, so that should probably be out either this Wednesday or Friday with the oldgloryclub.substack.com talking about the Canadian medical assistance in dying uh, aspect and a lot of the things that we had talked about today. So I kind of felt prepared to come on the stream. Um, and I also have a new video out on my channel called The Hegemon and the Revisionist. Uh, it puts an application of what I normally talk to on my channel, which is international relations and geopolitics, and puts it into perspective with regards to our domestic politics here in the United States and West overall. So as always, Oren, I'm very thankful for and grateful to be on here with you. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And I've got um, I've got uh, the Prudentialist links in the description for the video. So make sure you're clicking on his. You can find all his different stuff there. Uh, his YouTube channel, Twitter, Substack, all that different stuff will be available there. But thank you guys so much for joining. Had some great questions from the audience. Always a lot of fun. Uh, you should expect a few more streams this week. I'll be able to make those announcements soon. Kind of waiting for the last few uh, confirmations of guests to fall into place before uh, we can get into that. But like I said, uh, probably look for that piece on the Twitter files tomorrow on The Blaze. And as always, guys, we'll talk to you next time.